0: Kind of Hello, Prestige Heads, and welcome to your week's American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner, and I'm here as always with my friend uh, Derek Davison. How's it going, Derek? Uh, okay. I just got off the treadmill. So, uh,
1: thankfully this is just an audio podcast cause I'm, I'm not looking so good, but well, uh, I'm we, feeling we're
2: good. also
0: gonna, we're going to establish an OnlyFans, but, uh, that'll be announced well, soon. I, so. <laughs> and I'll, I'll shower before those sorts of things. Yeah. And at a certain tier <laughs> level, you might be able to get a, a, a copy, a, a copy or even yeah, the original yeah. of Derek's sweaty shirt. Who knows? There you go. <laughs> I could autograph it for you. Uh, well, it's actually, uh, you know, from jokes to seriousness, it's actually been a pretty grim week in international affairs, um, particularly given the fall of Kabul, which we discussed on our uh, special uh, podcast a few days ago. Uh, but Derek, in the intervening days, what's been going on in Afghanistan? How have things proceeded? What does it look like on the ground there? Um, well, the the big thing that's developed
1: over the past couple of days is uh, protests already. Um, in uh, there was a protest on Wednesday uh, in Jalalabad. There was a protest today, Thursday. Um, actually, a few protests. The main one was in Asadabad, which is the capital of Kunar Province. Both of them, both of these cities are in the east. Uh, but there were reports of protests in Kabul as well. It's Afghan Independence Day, uh, so there are celebrations. Well, they're not celebrations at this point, but there have been demonstrations in which uh, people have been waving the. Uh, national flag, i.e., not the Taliban flag. Uh, Taliban fighters have responded by uh, basically opening fire on these people. Uh, they killed three people in Jalalabad uh, yesterday. There's an untold number killed in Assadabad uh, today. Um, and it's, uh, you know, a sign that people are not happy with how things have shaken out, certainly. It's also, uh, I think, a test for Taliban leaders who want to present a, a moderate uh, sort of uh, international image, let's say, and are very keen to moderate face, uh, moderate face. Yeah. And and that's, uh, you know, coming amid threats from the Biden administration not to recognize the new government to cut it off from uh, we've already frozen its uh, central bank reserves that are in the United States. We've uh, kind of prodded the International Monetary Fund to freeze out uh, aid for Afghanistan from that venue so i mean there's a lot of kind of desire to to put on a good face and and get out from under what is emerging as a pretty
0: punitive uh, set of sanctions, which is kind uh, of the Iranian strategy in a sense. I think Biden yeah. has made gestures that he's going to use uh, far fewer uh, milita- uh, military military forces, and is really going to rely on economic uh, warfare in order to try to prod regimes or force regimes to do what the United States wants it to do. And this seems like a reflection of that.
1: That seems to be the case, and I know you you can you'll you'll talk about the the big speech in a minute here, but. Um, you know, apart from the the protests, the the main story is still the chaotic mess at Kabul Airport. Uh, you've got still thousands of, um, you know, by their different estimates, but all of them are in the thousands of U.S nationals who are still in afghanistan trying to get out probably uh you've got untold numbers tens of thousands nobody it seems to really know the true number of afghans who would qualify for the special immigrant visa program because they worked for the u.s military or did some uh, other service for western institutions and are at risk of uh, reprisals i mean there are you know again contrary to the the happy face that, that leaders are putting on, there are stories of Taliban fighters kind of going door to door looking for people who uh, worked in those roles very menacingly. Uh, there are tens of thousands of them who, you know, we, we've done nothing to get out of the country really and are scrambling to uh, to sort of try to, to do something with them. Uh, and then, of course, there's, you know, a countless number of Afghans who uh, would probably rather leave at this point than live under the Taliban. Um, the the scenes at the airport, from what I understand, have been a mess. Uh, there have been people killed in stampedes and or kind of, you know, in clashes with uh, the Taliban, you know, t- kind of Taliban ringing the airport. Um, and uh, y- there's a lot of criticism. And, and, I, you know, you can get into sort of criticizing what Joe Biden has done here. And, and it's it's more nuanced than that. But I think the chaos of this evacuation is certainly something that you could say, Uh, probably should have been handled better. There should have been more preparation for something like this. I I guess Um, the
0: the question is whether or not this is going to devolve into a Libya-type situation. We we talked a few weeks ago about the total chaos uh, that resulted after the fall of Muammar Gaddafi. And so the question is, is this just going to be, um, again, a a total chaos? Is there going to be some sort of civil war? Is there going to be a reconstitution of the Northern Alliance? I mean, so uh, once again, I just think it's important to highlight that this is what happens when the United States does this in foreign regions. Uh, and this there, was inevitable there is, from almost yeah, the there, beginning. I mean, there
1: is an emerging um, Northern Alliance type of thing happening in the Panjshir Valley, uh, led by the former vice president, Amrullah Saleh, and uh, the son of former Northern Alliance leader, Ahmed Shah Massoud. Uh, th- They're kind of holed up in in Panjshir, which is the one place in Afghanistan that really isn't under Taliban control at this point. And historically, uh, if you go back to the war against uh, the, the Soviet-backed government, if you go back to um, the war against the Taliban in the 90s, you know, the resistance to the Taliban in the 90s, Panjshir has held out against uh, some right. very steep odds over the years. Uh, I think there was a request from um, Massoud th- that the United States start arming. Uh, This resistance movement, I think it's probably a little early for that, but I wouldn't say long term that that's an impossibility. It certainly could happen uh, at some point, which brings us almost to the Biden speech perfectly because. Yeah. So, I mean, you've got I know you've got some some thoughts about joe biden's public remarks (laughs) this week so uncle Uncle joe
0: (laughs) uncle joe gave a speech uh given the wonderful title remarks by president biden on afghanistan uh, on august 16th and i think it's actually a really interesting speech that uh indicates where the biden administration might go or what the larger structure of what a biden foreign policy might look like so the speech begins i think interestingly enough with essentially saying that mission accomplished you know that the united States had a particular mission, uh, and that was to, quote, make sure Al-Qaeda could not use Afghanistan as a base from which to attack us again. And he says, quote, we did that. We severely degraded Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan. We never gave up the hunt for Osama bin Laden, and we got him. That was a decade ago, end quote. So Biden is essentially presenting the the the, the initial mission, the, the correct mission, you know, the smart war that Afghanistan supposedly was as accomplished. Um, but then, interestingly enough, he goes on to claim that, quote, our mission, in Afghanistan was never supposed to have been nation building, end quote. So he essentially just disregards the actual last, you know, 20 years of U.S. foreign policy, what the United States had actually tried to do, which was to, you know, create the, quote, unified centralized democracy, unquote, that Biden says in the speech that we didn't want to create. So it's interesting the way that he's trying to frame the war. He's essentially saying that the United States won in the way that it needed to win and that the the, the nation building project, which was never supposed to be a part of the mission, was quixotic and was doomed to failure. And, you know, uh, not wrong, but not necessarily historically accurate. Um, he also uh, goes on, and I think this is really important, to essentially define Afghanistan as not being in the vital national interest in the United States, that the only reason that the United States cares about Afghanistan is in order to, quote, prevent uh, for preventing a terrorist attack on uh, American homeland, end quote. So he's basically arguing that the United States had a very narrow Counterterrorism mission. The nation-building thing was never supposed to be a part of it, but we did it mistakenly. Even though he's not like quite saying that, Uh, and that the future is that uh, is just counterterrorism. And he goes on to list a bunch of places where that counterterrorism is a um, is a problem that quote warrant our attention and our resources. Um, And I want to pause for a second on this paragraph because it's really. Critical. So I'm just going to read it uh, out loud and, and say why it's important. Quote, We conduct effective counterterrorism missions against terrorist groups in multiple countries where we don't have a permanent military presence. If necessary, we will do the same in Afghanistan. We've developed counterterrorism over the horizon capability that will allow us to keep our eyes firmly fixed on any direct threats to the United States in the region and to act quickly and decisively. If needed, unquote. I think this is really critical because here Biden is effectively identifying the entire world as within the U.S. interest, or at least the entire world where counterterrorism, uh, where terrorism could you know serve as a base, which is essentially anywhere. And so this is very much in keeping in the geostrategic posture that the United States has adopted um, since 1945, when it essentially identified the entire world as as within its remit. And so um, I think it's important to underline that because it suggests that there, this isn't really an end to the forever war. The forever war was not just about literal Afghanistan. It was about the entire structure of counterterrorism that, quote, as Biden says, allows the U.S., quote, to act quickly and decisively if needed, unquote, essentially anywhere in the world. So I think that's a, a really critical thing that he's saying there um, and that he is essentially arguing or, or making clear that this sort of counter-terrorism effort is going to continue. Um, he then goes on to essentially say that, you know, there's no reason the United States should be here in Afghanistan, and he's not wrong about that, and that he's, you know, the buck stops with him, and he's going to ensure that there are no U.S. troops in the region. Um, Derek, I'm just curious, what do you think about that? What do you think the role of military contractors in Afghanistan uh, is going to be after this? Um, I mean, if Kabul hadn't fallen, I think it would have been different. But uh, what do you think is going to happen now? If you could, you know, predict even slightly about the future? Yeah, of, I mean, um, there,
1: there's a model here that you could follow, which is what the Obama administration did in Syria, uh, where we we didn't go in so much, and we didn't go in heavy certainly until. The whole, uh, you know, the ISIS bombing mission expanded into Syria miraculously. Uh, but initially yeah. who would have it was predicted more. That? <laughs> yeah, who, who could have predicted? Um, initially, it was more, you know, CIA, special forces, weapons uh, going to these supposedly vetted, uh, I don't really think they were, but that wouldn't be as much of a problem in Afghanistan, uh, but supposedly vetted rebel groups and kind of a, a lighter footprint type of an intervention, um, that's that's hard. That's going to be hard to do in Afghanistan because there's no, geographically, there's there's no foothold. I mean, I just mentioned there's this kind of emerging... Resistance in the Pancheer Valley, but the Pancheer Valley is cut off from everything. um uh, You know, which allows people
0: it's to mass there. Essentially, that's what allows people to mass there. Part of the yeah. reason
1: why it's so defensible. Uh, but it also, you know, unlike Syria, where you could come in via Turkey and kind of ship things in uh that way and bring you know advisors or contractors etc in through you know over the Turkish border. There's no, I mean, there's no easy way to get people into the Pancheer Valley to kind of support these rebels so i i don't know it's it's um it's very challenging i think i think you're you're right there's if, if Kabul I th- I hadn't so fallen too. it might be different and i know there's like uh the some of the dead enders are like why don't we just retake bagram airbase <laughs> like you know th- that Christ. time has passed guys it's time to move on um so yeah i don't know it's 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 going to be very um uh, very hard if they try to do a, an intervention like that
0: I, I agree. Um, and I want to continue here because uh, we're going to do an American prestige fact check uh, on, on what Biden says here. So, quote, it is wrong to order American troops to step up when Afghanistan's own armed forces would not. If the political leaders of Afghanistan were unable to come together for the good of their people, unable to negotiate for the future of their country when the chips were down, they would never have done so while U.S. troops remained in Afghanistan, bearing the brunt of the fighting for them, unquote. And that's right. But I think what Biden is implying is that the United States always gave, you know, the Afghan military uh, what it needed. And I was curious what, you, uh, what do you think about that, because I know we were recently discussing like the, the last of food the lack of certain resources so could you characterize um for uh american prestige heads i'm going to continue to use it uh what um what the realities of u.s support for the afghan military were um i mean it, it's sort of uh it is
1: sort of bizarre for him to to make this argument and uh i i found it kind of offensive I, i'll I'll explain why in a minute, but in terms of the level of support, I mean, it was done at the, at the national level. I mean, it was done in the, you know, here's some swanky Humvees, here's some cool Blackhawk helicopters, here's some, uh, you know, heavy weaponry, here's some planes, here's some training to fly the planes, but for the guys manning, Outposts in the middle of, you know, uh, distant provinces that were disconnected from Kabul and weren't getting enough food to eat. I mean, forget ammunition, forget weapons. They weren't getting any food. And You know, some of that has to do with corruption, I'm sure. Some of it has to do with money that was dropped on Kabul and then, you know, dispersed to everybody who's got their hands out in the political and military establishment. But the United States knew that was happening. If you cared about the readiness, like the combat readiness uh, of Afghan soldiers, then, then what have we been doing for the past 15 years, not providing, not making sure that that basic needs were being met uh, at the at the local level, Uh, you know, to suddenly turn around now and say, well, the Afghan government. What were we going to do if the Afghan government and the Afghan military weren't going to going to take care of this stuff? Well, you've known that they weren't taking care of this stuff. What were we doing? Like, what has been going on? Um, And I get, you know, Biden is sort of implicitly blaming the past two administrations, although he served as vice president in one of them uh, and certainly has been enough of a public figure that, you know, to the extent that he was aware of this stuff uh, happening, he could have spoken out about it. Um, But but it's still sort of like an implicit kind of uh, admission that this entire this entire occupation or mission uh, has been s- badly managed, I mean, just kind of, uh, you know, in, a, in horribly unworkable ways. Um, the reason that I found some of it offensive is because I think if you carry out forward the implication of what Biden is saying, um, there is a, a sort of complaint in there. Uh, not that the Afghan military failed to defeat the Taliban. I don't know that there was any expectation that it would defeat the Taliban once the United States left. The The complaint is that Afghan soldiers, again, these guys on the local level who weren't even getting fed, weren't getting you know uh, their most basic needs kind of fulfilled, that they didn't fight and die needlessly in order to buy Joe Biden and company a decent interval before Kabul fell. That's what the complaint seems to me to be about and, and, you know, you talk about uh, the fall of Saigon and did, did Biden want this to go another couple of years so that he could kind of wash his hands of uh, what happened. And, and that's, just i mean it's just so cynical it's it's like it's asking so people to cynical. die yeah. for your poll, for for your poll numbers it's asking people to die so that democrats don't get washed in the midterms and it's just it's it's disgusting i mean really if you carry it to that point and i don't you know maybe that's not what he meant but i don't know but but that's the
0: logical end point to me and it's it's just really kind of grotesque I agree. And I think this is always part of the larger fact. And this might be endemic to nationalism as a ideology that, um, of course, Biden just thinks American lives are more valuable than non-American lives. And I would even venture to say that Biden thinks, in in general, white lives, um, at least implicitly in the structure of of the whole system, that white lives are more important than non-white lives. And I think that's just the reality of what's been happening in American foreign policy for uh, much of its history from the expansion West and the indigenous genocide to the the uh, attempt to try to control all of latin america to you know fighting two brutal wars in korea and vietnam and asia and now having these you know long wars in iraq for, uh, and, and then afghanistan and i just think that there's a total disregard for uh human life and i think one of the most important left-wing commitments is this type of transhumanist perspective where we think that philosophically all life is equal because it's human life and i think just this this fake um Uh, These fake arguments about American innocence are just really uh, dystopian in a certain sense. Uh, And actually, just building off of that, um, one of the things that Biden says in the speech is, quote— We'll continue to speak out for the basic rights of the Afghan people, of women and girls, just as we speak out all over the world. And I was wondering if you could yeah, talk a little bit about the the role of sort of like um, the arguments that people are currently making about how terrible they feel for Af- about uh, Afghan women and Afghan girls. And this is not to say that, that um, women are going to do well under the Taliban. I think it's absolutely true that they're not. But I just wanted you to talk a little bit about the sheer hypocrisy of the United States claiming or war boost claiming that this was a war for afghan women that this was a war for for feminism in, in any way shape or form do you think that's accurate derek um no i
1: i don't i mean you know you can look at the very basic level on how many women have lost their lives over the course of this war um but if you if you pull back and and look at the, i mean the, the the primary case the best Case argument against the idea that the United States cares about women's rights around the world is our long friendship with Saudi Arabia, which uh, has never treated women. Even now, now that they're allowed to drive, Saudi women are allowed to drive, uh, which is sort of the big flashy reform that Mohammed bin Salman made. uh, That that's still a brutal place for women to live, And, and you know, even with some sort of cosmetic improvements, some of them not cosmetic. I don't want to discount them, but it's still not a good place for women to live. And we've never really, apart from a little bit of rhetoric here and there, uh, made a big deal about it. Um, And even, you know, the Taliban see this. I saw something. I don't I don't. It was on Twitter, so I can't attribute it to anything. But there was this uh, quote from from an unnamed Taliban that was basically like, look, you guys get along with Saudi Arabia. That's all we want to do here. Like, what's the big deal? Why are you, you know, uh, why is America so opposed to that? And, and it's true. I mean, this is, uh, these are the, the decisions that we've made to sort of shelve human rights and, and women's rights and those sorts of things when it's convenient to us and pull them out when it's convenient to use them as a, a, a sort of cudgel.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. And I just think it reflects the pure cynicism of a lot of these warmongers that, you know, as the thing falls apart, that they they're claiming that this is really about women's rights the past 20 years. Well, uh, I it's I mean, is- it's the same thing that that people did in Iraq,
1: right? When when the Iraq war started to come apart, first, it was about WMD, then we didn't find any, then it was about, you know, Saddam's working with terrorists, there's no evidence that he's working with terrorists. And you go through the the iterations, and eventually you land on what about the Freedom of the Iraqi people from tyranny, and it's like, okay, I mean, uh, I don't see any of you people caring that much about uh, freedom and tyranny in any other part of the world. But all right, so that's your uh, tenth order justification for this conflict, I guess.
0: Yeah, no, that's exactly right, and it's pure, pure cynicism. Uh, I just want to end talking about the speech and something that I noticed that was pretty interesting. Uh, here, here's a quote. The events we're seeing now are sadly proof that no amount of military force would ever deliver a stable, united, and secure Afghanistan, as known in history as the graveyard of empires. Unquote. And I just wanted to to underline that because um, you know Thomas Jefferson did refer to the United States as an empire of liberty, uh, but you know post Jefferson, most American leaders, uh, I don't think, in fact, as far as I'm able to recall, uh, have ever made such a direct connection between the United States and Being an actual empire, which in the American imagination is a bad thing. You know, it was a nation founded in an anti-colonial, anti-imperial revolution. And the United States has since uh, 1945, when it did become a global empire, uh, US officials have been very reticent to refer to themselves as an empire. And I just think it's interesting that, again, you know, of all people, it's based Biden who kind of slips and says, you know, this is the graveyard of empires, and I'm not going to allow the United States Empire to be buried in Afghanistan, and I just wanted to point it out because you know it's kind of with Trump and Biden we see a lot of the norms of American discourse going on, uh, undergoing these types of subtle shifts. And Biden, really, you know, he here expl- kind of explicitly uh, refers to the U.S. as an empire. If it's a graveyard of empires, then what what it would be the graveyard of the U.S. So I just wanted to underline that because I thought that was a, a pretty interesting thing.
1: Also, it's the graveyard of. European and American empires. (laughs) There have been plenty
0: of empires that have come come through Afghanistan over the years. They just haven't been white, basically. Right. Which, of course, according to U.S. officials, the only empires that are worth thinking about are white empires. Um, So let's leave Afghanistan behind for a sec and go to another uh, unhappy and depressing place in the world, and that's uh, Lebanon, uh, as they say in the United States, and Lebanon, as they say properly. And it's Lebanon in Arabic?
1: Uh Lebanon, yeah. I love Noon. yeah. So, Derek, what's been going or on in Lebanon? No, what am I doing? Again, L- I lab-non. apologize to my Arabic professor's. <laughs> uh, Lebanon.
0: Uh, Lebanon. Al-Kitab, the writers of Al-Kitab are very uh angry with me Yeah, you right they're going to come
1: out. They're going to sue me probably for <laughs> making them look bad. Although we didn't use we used elementary modern standard Arabic, which was the driest textbook ever written, but yeah. Anyway. Yeah, yeah, not not
0: great. So, but what's been going on in Lebanon?
1: Uh so, um Well, Lebanon hasn't had a government since, it's been over a year now, I think, since the, uh, yeah, it's been over a year since the explosion, um, accidental, it appears, of uh, a a huge amount of ammonium nitrate that was being stored in very unsafe conditions, at Beirut Seaport, uh, that uh, in the initial aftermath, at least, nobody seemed to know what it was or why it was there. Um, it's It, it was uh, confiscated, it, it turns out, off of a, a ship. And uh, maybe, you know, somebody had their, uh, was planning to use it as explosives, who knows. But uh, at any rate, it was stored next to some fireworks and hot weather, and uh, they didn't mix very well. And it blew up and it destroyed most of the seaport. Uh, it brought down the government of then Prime Minister Hassan Diab, who is still Prime Minister since he resigned, but he's been serving in an interim Capacity uh, as Lebanese leaders try to sort of piece together uh, a new government. They've they've been f- trying and failing for over a year now. Uh, they've been the the goal has uh, on paper been to put together a cabinet of technocrats or a non politicized. I'm putting that in air quotes uh, cabinet that would meet European demands so that they could unlock, you know, aid and funding. Um, But you've had uh, the once in future kind of ongoing uh, periodic. Prime Minister al Hariri tried to form a a cabinet and he was unable to do so. He and uh, the president, Michel Aoun, were unable to agree on the makeup of such a cabinet. Uh, So Hariri quit finally after several months um, uh, I think last month, perhaps, or maybe it was a month before, uh, and, uh, another former prime minister, Najib Makati stepped up and was tabbed to, uh, give it a go. He's running into the same problems. Um, the, the basic issue is the Lebanese cabinet is traditionally kind of doled out to, Different three
0: major interests. Yeah. Well, yeah. the
1: yeah, the leadership sort of, uh, you know, the president is a, a Maronite, the prime minister is a Sunni, the the speaker of parliament is, is Shia. But you have all these political parties who sort of control their little fiefdoms uh, within the cabinet. And the idea of doing a, a non-politicized cabinet basically means taking those Ministries out of their hands, and there's a lot of counter pressure not to do that. Uh, And Aoun has been, you know, sort of leading the charge to kind of leave some of these ministries under at least his party's, uh, you know, purview, if nothing else. And that's been, um, you know, contributed then to uh, what predating the the port explosion has been a period of just complete economic and political implosion. I mean, this is a country that is. Um, You know, if you've never seen a country just kind of destroy itself, basically, that's what's happening uh, to a large extent in Lebanon. Uh, the, The main critical issue right now is there
0: is a huge shortage of fuel. Uh, the a lot of Central infrastructure Bank. problems, w- power is going out all the time, Yeah, power, you know, people seriously, infrastructure problems. People are rioting and
1: killing each other in line at gas stations, trying to fill their cars. Uh, so there's a lot of lot of issues really specifically with fuel at this point. The Lebanese Central Bank, um, a couple of weeks ago, I think, maybe last week, uh, announced that it was going to end uh, – it had, it had been subsidizing fuel imports by – Kind of financing lines of credit at a much higher rate of exchange with the between the Lebanese pound and the U.S. dollar than you can actually get right now on the black market. It's like twenty thousand, twenty-one thousand uh, Lebanese pounds to the dollar. But they were financing it at a much more favorable rate. They can't do that anymore because they don't have any more foreign currency reserves. They don't have enough foreign currency reserves to sustain that.
0: Right. Uh, I, so I just want to pause for a second. Yeah. I just want to pause for a second on that, and this is we could see how the um, the structure of sort of the North Atlantic world continues to affect what we now call the global South. That that a lot of these domestic political um, choices are are made with a specific eye towards how Europe would respond, and as you were saying, toward unlocking aids, toward uh, aid, toward unlocking grants uh, and things along those lines. So we see this post Iraq and post um, Afghanistan move in the North Atlantic world to basically try to continue to dominate the world but through what is effectively economic coercion. Um, and I think we need, uh, just as you know, a, a left wing, we need to understand those connections between these security and economic structures more deeply than we currently do. Um, the, the most recent
1: twist in this story is that uh, Hezbollah says it, it will be importing fuel oil from Iran. Um, Somehow uh, the leader of Hezbollah, uh, Hassan Nasrallah, insists that he's figured out a way to do this without, Triggering U.S. sanctions, I guess we'll we'll have to see about that. Um, but you know, I mean, the, any fuel that comes into the country, I think, is going to be welcomed, no matter how illicit it might be or what the danger is, because it's becoming really existential. I mean, hospitals are having to shut down because they can't; they they have no electricity. Uh, the United States now—I just saw this before we started uh, recording. The United States has apparently told Aoun's office, uh, the presidency that it's going to allow or assist in uh, piping natural gas from Egypt into Lebanon through Syria. It's going to assist in, I guess, financing this or uh, logistically somehow. Uh, So that's sort of, I think, intended to counter this emerging uh, issue of Iran potentially stepping into the breach to to supply uh, fuel. Um, So that's that's kind of the the latest developments and, and, uh, you know, this this ongoing fuel crisis and much bigger political and financial crisis.
0: Right, again, and so we see the the reconstitution of the Middle East um, along new lines now that these power structures of the post-Post-Cold War era are changing. Um, So, Derek, we we were going to talk about Cameroon, um, which is experiencing a lot of ethnic violence. Um, Why don't we try to go through that relatively quickly because we've been talking for a while. So what's been going on in Cameroon as the world continues to uh, fall apart? (laughs) Yeah, so, I mean, there's been... um
1: fighting since uh, for over a week now between um basically Arab pastoralists and uh, a community of a, a predominantly fishing community uh non-Arab uh, people in northern Cameroon Uh, Dozens of people have been killed. I think at least 32 is the latest estimate. Um, You know, the number of villages have been destroyed. Thousands of people have been displaced. Uh, The reason that I thought uh, it was worth noting this is not because it's been a particularly large conflict, but it it touches on a couple of bigger issues. One is climate change. Uh, This is something that you see increasingly across kind of the central Sahelian band uh, of Africa, uh, where there's less and less usable land, there's less and less access to to water, and so describe
0: you have, the Sahelian band. Not everyone might be well, familiar so with that. so it's yeah, sort of the 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 transitional
1: area from as you move from the Sahara into kind of more moderate climates. Right. Uh, so it's arid, but it's not desert. Um, it's the liminal but, space, although. Yeah. Increasingly, uh, it is de- becoming desert, of, you know, desert because there's not uh, enough water and the temperatures are rising. But you have kind of uh, farming communities and now, you know, in this case, a fishing community on the one hand and herders and... Uh, increasingly kind of shoved into a smaller and smaller space. Uh, and traditional rivalries between these communities are getting worse because the pressure uh, to kind of claim your Arab, your little bit of the dwindling amount of arable land is getting worse. Uh, the other thing that makes this particular outbreak of violence dangerous is that Northern Cameroon has been um, not quite as badly affected as, say, northeastern Nigeria, uh, but it has been pretty badly affected by the Boko Haram conflict, uh, which has been going on for quite some time. And as a consequence, a lot of the people in northern Cameroon have armed themselves uh, to defend themselves against uh, Boko Haram raids, now more you know, Islamic State, West Africa province, Boko, the original Boko Haram sort of uh, floundering at this point. But there's still uh, – you've got a lot of weapons in a place where people are increasingly kind of not getting along with one another, and it it leads to these kinds of things, which I think uh, we've been seeing more of and I think will only continue to, to get worse uh, as – uh, as time goes on.
0: Uh, I think that's right. And climate change, as you said, is going to engender a bunch of these different conflicts in areas of the world that were already pretty unstable, thanks oftentimes to great powers doing things like arming these spaces or supporting various climate, uh, sorry, client or proxy regimes. Um, So on that depressing note, I think we'll leave uh, the first segment of American Prestige. Uh, And everyone, I hope you enjoy our interview with Spencer Ackerman, whose new book, Reign of Terror, recently came out. Uh, Thanks, Derek, and I'll I'll see you next week. Thanks. Hello,
1: American Prestige listeners. We are very grateful to be joined this week by special guest Spencer Ackerman, uh, who has been a reporter. I was, I'm was i not going to say national security reporter because I know that you are not going by that title anymore. Uh, we could talk about that essay, actually, if we have time. It's, it's a really good one. Um, but Spencer has been a reporter for covering the war on terror for almost its entire length. He's reported for The New Republic, Wired, The Guardian, The Daily Beast. Uh, he's won or shared in uh, the 2014 Pulitzer Prize, the 2014 Roy Howard Award for public service reporting, uh, the 2012 National Magazine Award, um, lots of uh, plot. It's really, Spencer has been one of the, uh, I think, best documenters of the War on Terror. And uh, we're very grateful to have him here to talk about uh, his new book, Uh, Reign of Terror, I could show it here on the video in case we ever actually do video. Uh, (laughs) Reign of Terror, How the 9-11 Era Destabilized America and Produced Trump. Uh, And uh, also has a new Substack newsletter, Forever Wars, foreverwars.substack.com. So we'd like to uh, urge you all to check out both of those. Spencer, thank you very much for coming on the program. Hey, thanks you guys so much for having me and for your kind words. (laughs) So um, I we will get m- more into the book itself and kind of uh, you know things that are specifically you know we're we're here to talk about the book I understand but given. Um, and I should say we're recording this on Monday, August sixteenth. If something completely different has happened by the time this episode <laughs> is released, don't hold it against us. Uh, but given the events of the last few days, and given the extent to which you have you have spent your career covering uh, the war in Afghanistan, I want to start with just your thoughts as you've watched the last couple of weeks and especially the last couple of days unfold in light of uh, the time you've spent in Afghanistan and in light of the the project that you just completed kind of cataloging the the war on terror what what, what have you you know as you've seen this unfold what have you th- been thinking
2: yeah a couple things um so i've spent you know not an appreciable amount of time in afghanistan i've spent a cumulative total of like two months, um, out of 20 years. So I don't want to suggest that I'm some kind of great Afghanistan expert. I'm just someone who's, you know, been there, met people, watched some fucked up shit. Um, you know, uh, nothing seems to me like it manifests American exceptionalism more than these moments when America recognizing that it is in the midst of a disaster, usually a disaster that involves uh, troops being pulled back from a battlefield rather than troops going there and destabilizing it, um, starts to talk about not really its own culpability, but instead using the wretched experiences, the abject desperation of regular people um, as an excuse for one or other American agenda. And on the one hand, um, we need to recognize that it is risable, uh, I would argue, to treat what, you know, human misery we're seeing unfold in Kabul especially Um as somehow distinct from the war, as as an alternative to the war, rather than the war having brought us to this point, and not even just this current 20-year war. America has been destabilizing Afghanistan since the 1980s. It just did so in an earlier generation and for uh, a different purpose, which is to say anti-communism. The War on Terror is the recrudescence of anti-communism. Uh, the second time is farce of it. The, the, the mm-hmm. 18th Brumaire of anti-communism, let's say. Right. Um, so, you know, I think of human beings uh, who were kind to me in Afghanistan, who didn't need to be. And I think of them with with dread for what's coming. What I see in the kind of discourse um, is using their experiences by people, you know, and by people who haven't particularly, you know, paid much attention to the wars as they have been going on, uh, use them as an excuse for one or other theories, fantastical theories of American power. and this one in particular, a suggestion that if you know, only the US had continued to fight, In Afghanistan, we wouldn't be seeing absolutely horrific images, images that remind me of 9-11, of desperate people trying to cling to C-17s and falling to their deaths. And it is not, what we're seeing right now is not an alternative to the war. What we're seeing is the result of the war. What we're seeing is that the war left nothing enduring except human misery. And what I've been writing and what I think... Um, has really emerged so much um, amongst a segment of the public over the last five, six days, um, is the recognition that if the United States truly cares as its elites right now in the media and in politics are are insisting that, you know, we truly do, then the mission of the United States, the final mission of the United States in Afghanistan has to be the evacuation of every refugee it can possibly get out. Instead, we're seeing a humanization just as like, like the barest humanization possible of people trying to get out, but only those who served the war in Afghanistan. Um, I have heard in fora that I'm on phrases like worthy Afghans which is is just the most disgusting thing I, I, I can think of, particularly given that those metered out into unworthy Afghans are so for the purposes of either not having supported the war or not having actively resisted the Taliban. And it's a really just hideous thing to hear that there is, you know, some element within national security circles. That doesn't particularly care about distinguishing between the Taliban and the people fleeing the Taliban and that, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll stop there because it feels like I'm full on ranting. But that, those were my impressions of, of I think- know, what we've been seeing the last several days.
0: No, I mean, I think that's exactly right. And that's keeping, you know, with with the history of it. I think the American foreign policy establishment has really not taken uh, non-white life and particularly um, it hasn't taken Asian life or, or Middle Eastern life seriously for a very long time. And even in the... Um, The films that are coming out right now, the videos that are coming out right now of Afghanistan, it's again just these masses of brown people streaming after planes that are essentially treated like they're in a a horror movie. And so it's kind of interesting how that cultural discourse is reflected in the movies. Uh, And it's also, I just wanted to build up on your point about, you know, the discourse. And to me, it also reflects the longstanding, what I've been terming the demassification of American war since the advent of the all-volunteer force force in the early 1970s, and just the fact that few Americans are actually affected by these wars, which allowed them to ignore Like you said, not many people knew many things about Afghanistan, because Americans have the freedom to ignore it. Most Americans have the freedom to ignore it. It happens over there, and it doesn't affect them. And I think you're seeing that in the, the cheap political discourse that's happening right now, which I think will depressingly, if predictably, be forgotten in a week or two. Uh, I think in, in two weeks, we'll be hearing very little about Afghanistan, and we'll pretty much not hear about Afghanistan, perhaps, uh, ever again until there's a a particularly dramatic thing that happens there. Um, But I wanted to return a little bit to your career, and this will get us to the book. Um, I mean, I I, th- I really enjoyed the book. I thought it was a really excellent uh, précis on, on the war on terror and how it was a bipartisan project and, and its various stages. And uh, you have a great line about how you know it was it wasn't terrorism that was the threat; it was counterterrorism that was a threat all along. And you really show how it's part of the the de-democratization of the United States's foreign policy-making apparatus, which has been going on. For seventy years, but um, as we get into the book, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your own trajectory. Um, you know, we're all, we're all geriatric millennials here. Uh, I think D- Derek might be a, a very late Gen I am, Xer. Yeah, I'm not a
1: millennial. That is offensive <laughs> <Yeah>. to me.
0: <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to misidentify you, Derek. Uh, uh, the the sin- most sincere of, of apologies. But Spencer, I I think you know. Um, you and I are from New York. We're we're uh, you know 9/11 was was a big thing in our lives, but I was just wondering how has your own trajectory what has your own trajectory been over the last, you know, two decades since 9/11 and in particular if you could maybe place it in the larger context of our generation at large because I think your trajectory as at least as expressed in the book mirrored what happened to a lot of people that are around our age.
2: Sure. Um I think that um, when I look back on, you know, the, the person I was shortly after 9-11, you know, watching, you know, 2,800 plus of my neighbors burned to death, uh, seeing the streets of Manhattan militarized, seeing, you know, smelling 9-11, everyone who was here just remembers that, like, it's, I, 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 of all the sections of the book, I actually struggled, I think, to write this the most because I was trying to kind of, you know, through the distorting prism of traumatic memory, remember a smell that I've kind of never got out it of uh, uh, the taste of my mouth. It, you know, it hit me on the sides of of my jaw, this, this sickly, sweet, and also savory um, sense memory that, was the smell of people being and having been incinerated. And. You know, I. I'm ashamed to say it made me a barbarian. It it brought out uh, the absolute worst and, and most psychotic in me. Uh, I wasn't a critical thinker at all, and I thought I was. I thought I was performing that critical thinking. It so happened that I also then took a job right after college that I was ex- that I felt extremely lucky to get. Um, people may not remember for us, geriatric millennials, <laughs> like, you know, in our adult lives and, and sorry, and baby and, and youngest gen Xers. Um, <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank you, you. <laughs> you know, I look, I I don't know what I am. I was born in June of 1980. So I'm like the world's youngest Xer or the world's oldest millennial. I don't know. <laughs> we're, but, we're a generationally <laughs> inclusive podcast. So very so thank you. Right. Thank you. I appreciate that. Right. Um, the point that I was kind of driving at is I went to work and was very grateful for having, you know, found, you know, anything out of college in, you know, the first of three major recessions of my lifetime. Um, uh, a job as an intern um, at the New Republic, which was the premier journal of war on terror psychosis. Um, that was the Peretz
0: New Republic, is yeah. That, that,
2: was, that was Marty Peretz's era right. New Republic. Amazingly, um, the editor of TNR, uh, Peter Beinert, has been on an even more incredible journey um, than I have, and um, I, you know, you, you you absolutely love to see it. Um, yeah. And anyway, at that time, it the, it it was just a, an extremely toxic place in which exceptionally toxic views, not just about lazy barbarism in the sense of the entitlement, even obligation felt toward treating the Muslim world violently. Um, and, you know was was given free expression. It was very openly encouraged. And to view the world otherwise was not serious. And like through this all, what I wanted to do wasn't to be the, you know, a pundit. I, I wanted to be a reporter. Um, that was what I thought journalism was. And This was a quick, I had been working for, you know, through when I was in college, um, for a, a long gone New York alt weekly called New York press. And that was kind of my first real experience there. Hell yeah. I remember Uh, the New York press. Yeah. Nice. That, that was a shambolic place that, (laughs) but, but I, I, I remember it very fondly. Um, anyway, um, a lot of real fucked up stuff there, uh, Taki Theodorakopoulos in particular, um, Anyway, I'll stop telling stories about that. Um, and I was like interested in doing long form reported stories. And one of the opportunities that I was given, because like to, to back up a little, like this was also the kind of dawn or at least the early phase of when magazine writing started appearing on the internet. And um, I was, you know, one of the younger people there. Um, and also, like everyone around me was kind of an established writer. Um, and they wanted to be established magazine writers. They were not interested in, in writing for the Internet. So I was like, I'll do that. I'll do that. Like, rather than, um, you know, competing for scarce print space on a weekly basis with people I could not compete with, um, I would, you know, do the job that they weren't interested in doing. and. Um, Ironically,
0: though Stephen Glass was, of course, exposed by the internet um, outlet of Forbes. Yes, right. Very, very yeah.
2: ironic.
0: Yeah. So um, Stephen Glass was uh, someone at New Republic who plagiarized and fame very famously.
2: Well, um, they also like made a movie out of this that they let like TNR like staffers go see, and that was kind of a wild ride. Um, but the point was, is it was a completely intellectually incurious place that viewed itself as. Uh, the pinnacle of intellectual honesty, curiosity, and rigor. And it was none of those things. Um, I was given an opportunity early on to write a magazine piece about uh, the Iraq war. Um, and this became like one the first major piece I ever did. Um, it was called Deception and Democracy on the cover of The First Casualty. Um, and it was about, it was a reported piece with You know, talking about George W. Bush taking the country to war based on, like, demonstrable lies in particular um, about Saddam Hussein having nuclear weapons and Iraq, having a meaningful connection to al Qaeda. And one of the sources for that story, it's not secret now, it was in a public indictment, um, uh, was Joe Wilson, who was the ambassador who was asked by the CIA to investigate whether Saddam Hussein had purchased a stockpile of uranium from Niger, and that became a bit of a of a of a shitstorm that ultimately like contributed to the indictment of of um, Bush's aide Scooter Libby. So that was a weird thing to experience um, at kind of a young age. And as a result of this, uh, I started. I got to write uh, a daily blog for TNR called Iraq. Um, which was kind of met. this Peter's version of this idea was that, like, you know, this is in early 2004 um, it was like, you know, liberals by which he meant, in particular, the magazine um, had backed a war that was looking like an absolute disaster. Um, and uh, like there needed to be a space on the magazine to reckon with that. Um, I credit Peter with with knowing that was an obligation the magazine had incurred. And so I was tasked with writing this. And that meant, um, you know, at an age when, you know, now that I'm 41, I think was way too young to be writing about something so serious. I was like throwing myself into the the details of uh, the occupation of Iraq and the coalescing emergency and what was going on. And and by the summer, I, I was just writing in a way that like made me really nervous about my future at the place, Like, the U.S. has to withdraw from Iraq. And I I wrote a piece for the magazine at the end of the year, which was sort of the dissenting piece in a cover package about, like, what next in Iraq? Um, That was just like, okay, if the fallback position is that, like, we need to be in Iraq for Iraqi democracy, the Iraqis are demanding we leave. Why not make some kind of arrangement where, like, the Iraqis get to vote the United States out and the U.S. can say, like, we have followed you know, the will of the Iraqi people and what I, you know, was too ignorant and like naive to have considered was that like democracy, like, no, like the point was, was like American interests have to predominate here. And I like, um, anyway, that, you know, Long story short, that was the beginning of the end for me in the magazine. And in 2006, I was fired from it, um, went on to basically just stick with um, national security reporting, um, went to Iraq and Afghanistan. I still like as much I write, I write about this a little bit in the book. As much as I thought I was, I I call the 9-11 era an early red pill, by which I meant like this, there was this like very casual appetite um, for the most psychotic interpretations um, and the most violent solutions, um, the most uh, pathologized of interpretations about what led to the war, none of which, like, like, you just couldn't do any material analysis, any historical analysis. Like, that was just not the vogue, and there were, you know, professional ramifications in a variety of ways. Um, and so I, I call that in the book an early red pill. And even now that I, you know, introspect um, when I thought I had spit that pill out, I can see in like bad journalism I have produced over the years, like the lingering effects of that. And it, it, it took me a long time, I think, um, to really see how deeply like even when I thought I was challenging um, American national security that like a latent American exceptionalism kind of remained within me. Um, And, uh, you know, um, I wrote this stuff uh, for Wired after that. Um, I'm skipping a couple steps here because I've been talking forever. Um, But in 2013, I went to The Guardian and was incredibly lucky uh, to be like have as my first task and something that like my editor's, for very good operational security reasons like deceived me about like what I was about to be working on um we like my first task was working on uh the Edward Snowden leaks um and like I you know I had felt that I had like long since you know lost my illusions about this but now like a thing that I had been trying to report since it broke in 2005 was now available to me, pretty much a secret history of what the NSA truly was. Um, And that's profound and that's pretty life changing. Um, I worked for The Guardian for, you know, several more years and basically, basically, like through all of this, just kind of became like more strident, less reasonable. But also, I think, um, probably more of an obsessive as a reporter. Um, that took me through the Daily Beast. And recently I've decided, like, I just don't want a boss anymore after 20 years of doing this. And now kind of I'm in a position where I might not need to have one in order to make a living. So I'm giving that a try now. And I'm hoping that, like, the experience that I've had of, like, leaving newsrooms, which, you know, are, are very much blessings as well as curses, um, I can just do kind of better journalism
0: uh, so, Derek, let's get to the book in a second, but I just want to underline one quick thing. I think, Spencer, what you were saying is absolutely right on. I think, particularly growing up in the 1990s, we were promised two things. One, that capitalism was the be-all and end-all, and two, that American imperialism would not only make the world safe for Americans, but would literally end genocides and everything like that. And yeah. I do think the millennial political experience is defined essentially by you know Afghanistan, Iraq, and then, you know, for Kota, Libya, and then the 2008-2009 recession session. And so I think that 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 there's been, as you gesture toward in the book, this larger sort of red pilling where people become, you know, skeptical of the system. And of course, as you also uh, demonstrate in the book, that could go in different ways. That could, you know, lead to January 6th, or it could lead to someone being critical of the national security state. And I just think that's a a common generational experience uh, that's crucial to understand the rise, you know, of, of the, you know, post-2014 uh American left. But Derek, you wanna go to the book?
1: Yeah, I, I well, I have a few questions on the book, but um, you mentioned covering Iraq, and I think Iraq is a is a good microcosm, and we're seeing another one unfold now uh, of one of the themes of the war on terror, which is a sort of national self delusion or a series of delusions. Uh, some of them. Uh, I I don't want to say well-intentioned, but sort of just kind of convincing ourselves that America is good and America is doing the right thing and these things that we're doing are necessary. Some of it is, you know, a deliberate delusion, you know, on the part of the American government, uh, trying, you know, basically lying to the American people. Um, I, I go back, you know, I, over the last couple of days, I've gone back again and again to the Afghanistan papers, which were released in 2019 and showed that everything the United States government had been saying about the Afghan war for uh, 18 years at that point was a lie. And and when people talk about, you know, people talk about uh, how surprising it is that this collapse has been so total, uh, we knew, we knew all of these things, but we, you know, kind of looked at the Afghan papers and said, oh gosh, we've been lied to, and then went back to listening to the lie. And I'm as guilty of that as anybody else. Uh, but, you know, as you kind of watch This unfold and as you, you know, have chronicled. Uh, the course of the war on terror. I I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the extent to which uh, this country has diluted itself, either intentionally or, you know, otherwise. Uh, And is there a a path out of that? Is there some way to kind of shake things up enough? And maybe this is it. I don't know. Probably not, I think. uh, To to stop doing that and and sort of take a critical look at at what's really happened over the last 20 years.
2: I I certainly hope that There's a clarifying event unfolding and, you know, what we're seeing in Afghanistan uh, is is, is what I mean by that. But, you know, the the trouble is that the interpretations that are dominating um, political and journalistic um, cultures um, obscure it and and kind of prevent it, um, I think, somewhat from from unfolding in, in, in the way that would be you know, necessary here. Um, the general atmosphere this country operates in, um, or at least, you know, its elites operate in, I don't, you know, think anyone can really plausibly argue that national security and foreign policy in this country is meaningfully de- democratic. Um, small d, that it's is. It's not by design,
0: uh, yeah. It, yeah exactly. All the institutions, like, yeah, make sure it's not.
2: Yeah, exactly. Like, this is, this is an elite preoccupation and, you know, any form of of indirect, you know, consent operates as ratification um, after the fact, and you know, very often, you know, elites talk about this like pretty openly. That you know, one of the one of the ways in which like here's a here, here's I think like a like a direct delusion, Derek, that um, we see from the security state in particular that. You know, I, I watched with fascination during um, the fallout from the Snowden stuff. And I, I put a little bit of this in the, in the book, which is that, like, the National Security Agency after 9-11 under a director named Michael Hayden, who will go on to become a hashtag resistance hero um, under Trump, um, violates the Constitution at a scale unprecedented in American history. Um, all of your communications and your communications data after 9-11, was seized by the government. Um, And at that point, the Fourth Amendment is kind of a quaint thing. And when particularly, this this takes a variety of evolution, um, a variety of evolutionary forms after after that, but it continues throughout, um, ratified in different ways, Um, in particular by 2008 law that Barack Obama, when he was still in the Senate, uh, cast his last meaningful Senate vote for. Um, and then when the Snowden documents showed in irrefutable ways, because this was from the NSA and GCHQ, its UK counterpart, um, it, itself, the degree to which, through at scale, um, the NSA was essentially like deciding for itself. How much freedom, how much privacy Americans had? Um, it would then respond to the outcry in among other ways by saying, "Well, look, the leadership of the House and Senate of both parties and the intelligence committees that oversee us—they all said this was all right. You all voted for this, meaning Congress—and um, you know in." You know, certain re-ups of the Patriot Act and Section 702 of the FISA um, Amendments Act uh, or Section 702 of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act that was amended by the 2008 FISA Amendments Act. Sorry, reporting habits die hard. Um, And what they meant by that was. We had everything we're looking for in terms of of Democratic consent. You all said this was good. You all said that we could do this. And they did not and would not understand. What everyone watching this debate unfolding understood intimately, which is that, first off, that isn't meaningful democratic consent at all. Second of all, what exists in terms of democratic consent in this country is the barest facsimile um, of what like real democracy is. Um, What we have in this country under, you know quote unquote, normal circumstances is bourgeois democracy. This is not going to be real democracy. Nothing about the way the American government is set up provides real democracy. Everything about the way the American government and the American economy is set up is, is about preventing that, um, or at least serving as a bulwark against it. Um, and then finally, when I would see, there was a, a famous moment when Keith Alexander, who was at the time the head of the NSA, goes to the Black Hat Hacker Conference. Um, in Las Vegas, um, right after the, the Snowden stuff had, had broke. And he's there, like the NSA had typically been, to recruit people um, in order to go work for the NSA. And now he's being heckled by people screaming, freedom, and bullshit at him when he starts talking. Like, he starts saying, like, he tries to play this off as being like, yeah, we stand for freedom. And, like, everyone there knows what's happening at that point, and is angry, understandably so, about the ways in which the NSA has concealed and then lied about what it actually has done. And then what happened? Extremely little changed. Um, I think what we you know, have to kind of take from this is that the structures that are set up, uh, both from an executive sense and a legislative sense, um, to both respond to us and uh, supposedly uh, direct or check or otherwise balance the national security state simply will not do that in an inertial sense. It, it, it will do exactly what um, it has been doing, which is continue um, all of these practices. Um, and only when like, people in an organized way very actively force them uh, in uh, to to pull back from from these operations. Will any rollback happen? And I, I I mean that hopefully. I mean that in the sense that I truly do believe, and we we, we are starting to see some of this um, with you know the democratic socialists that are be and not even you know socialists necessarily, but you know new waves of democrats. That are seeking um, to to wield power in Congress, not just because of every other I think worthy aspect um, of a democratic socialist agenda, but also to tie in this critique globally and to rein in um, and you know hopefully abolish the war on terror and uh, only when people force. Uh, their representatives and would-be representatives to make hard binary choices for maintenance and abolition between maintenance and abolition of the war on terror. Then I think people really do have the power to end this. Just because the structure inhibits democracy, particularly in, in this sort of patch of area that I cover, I think is 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 not you know a, a, a sentence of hopelessness. Um, it is also, I think. opportunity in the same way that, you know, those elements of entrenched, you know, oligarchical, frankly, power um, that benefit from uh, the American legislative and and executive systems is currently maintained. um, They oftentimes don't know how fragile uh, their support um, amongst the public actually is. And we see that both on the right and on the left, obviously in different forms, I don't draw moral equivalencies to them. I just pointed out to say that like people who have been treated kind of as marginal by mainstream politics, nevertheless around the country, recognize that the wars have been a disaster. That won't solve, I think, a a much more fundamental um, series of structural problems, Um, but it will nevertheless call attention to them um, if people organize around them, and I think the structures that support these wars are insanely brittle, and just need to be kind of poked at a bunch um, by people acting together in solidarity to be broken.
1: I don't. I don't mention this to make light of the government and the security establishment lying to the American people and and uh, or anything. But uh, I do think it's very illustrative. I just wanted to mention a tweet uh, from yesterday evening by uh, a congressional reporter for The Guardian, Hugo Lowell, uh, who wrote uh, that the Republican Party has removed a page from their website bragging about Donald Trump's deal with the Taliban uh, that committed the U.S. to withdraw from Afghanistan. And I think that's i mean you know it's, it's part of a process of just kind of trying to convince the american people that that things that have happened haven't really happened it's it's all part of that and it's it's just sort of uh, absurd but it it has gone on for for 20 years now and and as you say hopefully uh you know there will be some effort to push back against it
0: I just wanted to pick up briefly, Spencer, on a couple of things you said. I really want to underline the importance of the institutions, essentially, because this is what I wrote my first uh, academic book on, and it really we've been living in an era of incredible, um, incredibly undemocratic foreign policy making, essentially. Right after World War II, the American state decided that the existential threat initially posed by Nazism was passed on to the Soviet Union, and you needed to create a structure of foreign policy making that you know, like the Fed, effectively removed decision making from the public. So you get the creation of the National Security Council, the Department of Defense, and all of these institutions that continue to make American foreign policy. And one of the things that I, I wanted to ask you, as someone who was so embedded in this, I am actually it sounds like much more pessimistic than you about the capacities of institutional change in the United States um, for a number of reasons. One, I think that Except in these hot crisis moments, most Americans genuinely don't care about foreign policy because they think it doesn't affect them, even though it does, and also because they genuinely don't have a say in it. Like, it was taken out of their hands very consciously. Um, Another thing that I think uh, that I'm I'm very skeptical about is the possibilities of mass politics in this particular moment. I think the administrative state and the functioning of of the American state writ large is incredibly um, conservative and undemocratic, and again, by design— that a lot of decision making is made through norms. It's it's uh, pursued through rules. It's in these institutions that have almost no democratic accountability, uh, certainly not to the American public and almost not to Congress. So I wanted to push you a little bit more just because I think we on the left often hear a lot of times like, you know, we just need to organize and then people power will change it. And I just don't think history demonstrates that. And I think we might see something along the lines of an incredibly um, decaying society, American, society at home but with an incredibly powerful american empire abroad and i've written about this because i don't think you actually need that many people to run this globe-spanning structure you don't need that many people to operate drones you don't need that many people to operate special forces um you know uh it even it, it's a tragedy, but not that many people, uh, not that many Americans at least, died in Afghanistan compared to Vietnam, compared to Korea, compared to World War II. We actually have created, and I think Obama really institutionalized this, a light footprint empire. So I wanted to know if you could speak a little bit more to you know me playing devil's advocate there about the possibilities of change, because I am genuinely very pessimistic.
2: Sure, and um, I, I say this, you know, not as someone who's an organizer, but someone you know who's a journalist. So you know, perhaps I'm I'm just out of my lane on it. But I, you know, I've had a weird life. Um, I've partied with defense contractors. The the ways that they fet reporters is absolutely nuts. They can afford the top shelf booze when you, there are all of these conferences that, um, particularly if you go to. Florida. I wouldn't recommend doing that now, having just come back from Miami myself. Um, but like, a whole lot of the military is in Florida: Southcom, Centcom, SoCOM, and you know there are you know periodically like something between conferences and like frankly festivals um, <laughs> of the of the defense industry that take place all the time. And like you 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 if you are a reporter who you know who goes through these things. Like I've I've been invited to wear like you know the like helmets for the F thirty like pilot helmets for the F thirty five and like see like virtual cockpits of being like in these planes and like the idea is that you're supposed to leave this like wasn't this so cool Um, and instead at least you you weren't
1: asphyxiated so that's something I mean you're
2: yeah well that's (laughs) the F twenty two we didn't I I I wasn't wearing the hypoxia helmets um, from the F twenty (laughs) two. Um, but, uh, you're, this is all a long way of saying, Daniel, that you're, you're right. Like we shouldn't underestimate for a moment. Like I call it in in the book, Obama's sustainable, um, war on terror, um, which serves as, as a bit of a, you know, thin end of the wedge for a sustainable empire. But I don't think empires ever are sustainable. Um, they just look like that until they're not. And, in particular, like what, what we really have to, you know, from, I, I I see you objecting. So like, you know, perhaps that is too much of a, of a, of a 30,000 foot. Just very quickly.
0: I think that was true in the past because you needed people to maintain empires. When you're thinking about Britain, Ottoman empire wrote, you needed people Mm -hmm. today. You don't need people. That's a fundamental transformation, but just a quick tangent.
2: Um, nevertheless, um, I, you know, particularly with, like, the rise now of imperial competition, um, I think there is a tremendous opportunity um, to kind of expand the critique, you know, of, of the War on Terror. critique that, like, since the book has come out, I've been, you know, encouragingly surprised to see, you know, how, you know, in a way I didn't expect, widely and warmly, um, this this critique you know, has has been presented. I think there is something about the 20 year anniversary um, prompting somewhat of, of a reflection. And I want to do my part to kind of like kick that door as, as open, as wide as as possible. And then one that once that happens, I think we have an opportunity um, to start like poking at the ways in which this structure operates in practice, the ways in which like what kind of exists in this country as A form as like probably you know with the exception of 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 the um, of the hydrocarbon industry, um, an industry that is you know you know mediated in critical ways by state intervention and shaped by it. Um, But of course that industry is multinational. The defense industry isn't. The defense industry is what basically exists as a form of state capitalism in this country. It is something in which you know when you say you don't need. Um, a lot of, you know, people to maintain an empire. That is definitely true overseas. However, in this country, a tremendous amount, I don't know the actual number, but just like a tremendous amount of jobs are created by the state subsidized defense industry. And like that has to be replaced and it has to be replaced with something. You can't simply throw people out of work. And you also, once people are, are dependent on those industries for a livelihood, they will of course, you know, defend them. And like, these are not unionized jobs like in the main. Um, so like organizing kind of, you know, has, has, has an interesting relationship, um, with that in ways that probably I shouldn't talk, you know, more about cause I'm, I'm out of my lane, but, you know, I think there is nevertheless in this, you know, moment of competition, um, an opening uh, for people to say we we neither want our uh, political structure and our economy to work this way, to be dependent on mass immiseration, extraction and death, to export such death, and that if we are willing to accept the premise that there are certain industries that are so vital uh, to the well-being of the United States, you know, it, it I don't mean to minimize the challenge that this will, will rec, you know that this you know poses and and the task you know as as monumentous as it is, but that is at least a thin wedge for which you say great, there are other such industries nationalize them and make them meaningfully democratic
1: we're we're coming up on a point where we should probably start steering toward a uh, conclusion obviously there's a, so much we could talk about here um but we haven't really mentioned the second poll of your book. I mean, we've talked about September 11th. We haven't really talked about Donald Trump and and sort of the the book is about the process by which we got from 9-11 to Donald Trump. So without asking you to lay out the entire thesis of the book in five minutes, um, I I was struck by, you know, when you talk about The ways that the war on terror provided a template for the Trump campaign, not only ideologically in this sort of nativist backlash against immigration, against, you know, Muslims, against foreigners of all stripes, uh, but even at the at the sort of nitty gritty level, when we get to the 2020 campaign and the 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 concept of endless war where you just you never lose if you never quit as a template for Trump to continue saying that he won the won the election uh, no matter what. It's sort of like even at that kind of micro sense, there's a there's a connection. Um, But the forces that were unleashed by September 11th that contributed later on to bringing us the Trump administration are things that were in the main and you talk about this in the book already there i mean nativism was already there kind of you know strains of neoconservatism and uh kind of nationalist conservatism were already there the the democrats kind of uh or liberal liberalism's, i guess sort of obsequiousness to power and and you talk about it in the the sort of best example of this is you know, talking about Donald Trump as though he's an existential threat to the United States while still allowing him all the powers and all the levers of the the war on terror allows the presidency. Uh, All of these things were there before 9-11 and 9-11 just sort of unleashed them. But at the same time, there is a sense that that incident uniquely kind of created a a sense of national madness almost. And how do you uh, conceptualize sort of what was already there and just kind of waiting to break out versus what September 11th actually created from, from, you know, from nothing, I, I guess.
2: So, uh, the way I put it in the book is that the war on terror invents nothing. The war on terror is a doorway into these dark aspects of American history that have been there from the start. Um, it is, however, a doorway, I'm going to mix metaphors, um, that, you know, opens under guise of righteous emergency. So there is an urgency. There is, in fact, a sense of necessity to combating danger and promoting public safety, obviously national security through opening that door up. And, you know, when you look historically at, you know, torture techniques like the CIA used after 9-11. You see all of the ways in which these particular techniques are used at home and abroad throughout American history. Waterboarding comes from the U.S. occupation of the Philippines. You know, as much as the U.S. likes to, you know, condemn, and rightfully so, don't get it twisted, Bashar Assad from using barrel bombs against Syrians, the United States invented barrel bombing in the marine occupation of Haiti, um, which is something we don't often talk about When we talk about Afghanistan being the longest war in American history, in fact, it very recently outstripped the 20 year occupation of Haiti um, for that for that title. And we we need to remember that. Um, I'm from Flatbush. I live in a neighborhood that is one of the, along with Miami, hearts of the Haitian diaspora. Um, And, you know, I could go on and on in that vein, but, you know, child separation um, is a From chattel slavery and native genocide that we saw manifested not only um, with like repeated threats to do so uh, in the war on terror, but then as an explicit policy of the United States under Trump executed by one of the luminaries of the war on terror, John Kelly, where I would go a little bit more kind of, you know, pop culture. Um, is that like, and this was a bit about like how I wanted uh, the end of chapter three, which is called liberal complicity in the war on terror that ends with Obama's election to kind of feel. Um, but if you guys are Lord of the Rings people, um, you'll remember, uh, the moment after, you know, the, the war at the end of the first age that defeats Sauron, Elrond, the king of the elves and Isildur, uh, the king of the men climb into Mount Doom holding the one ring. And Elrond is screaming at Isildur, uh, throw it into the fire. Like, you have to get rid of this thing. Throw it into the fucking fire. Get rid of it. And Elrond uh, watches to his horror as Isildur, at this moment of great triumph, decides, well, what if I just wield it instead? Wouldn't I wield it more responsibly? Think of all of the great things I would be able to do with something of this sort of power. And after all, isn't it just a tool? Can it be used however the, 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 the bearer wishes it to, to, um, to wield? And like that, to me, uh, I, wanted the, I wanted the reader at the end of chapter three, having gotten through everything we've, we've gotten through about the establishment of the war on terror and now seeing you know, Barack Obama in 2008 get ready to be president, to be Elrond screaming, throw it into the fire, abolish it, get rid of it. And instead, Obama puts the ring on his finger. And I, you know, to, to perhaps put it, you know, finally in, in, in the terms you, you, you wanted, Derek, um, the war on terror is the one ring, but American exceptionalism is Sauron. All of this stuff existed through Sauron. Sauron creates the ring as the distillation of his power. And that's kind of how I conceptualize the war on terror's relationship um, to American empire and the interests and ideologies accordingly shaped
0: So I have a question I think that's really interesting Uh, and I think one of the things that people are beginning to focus on is the actual structure of the empire you know the 750 bases the incredible number of special forces deployed around the world so um, as we wrap up here I think it's important that we on the left have some form of utopia so let's say in 30 years everyone listened to American prestige and Spencer Ackerman Uh, what type of world would actually exist would there be no US bases abroad uh would there be you know we'd spend 50 million dollars on defense and the rest would be on cancer research what type of world are we actually trying to build toward first of I, all our patreon would be much bigger uh but <laughs> other than
1: that yeah, we'd be we'd be state and, you know and Spencer, uh, the state would fund us.
2: yes they would be huge <laughs> yeah i mean it would look like that it would be like active um dismantlement of the empire, it would be the removal of those bases. It would be, the thing is, is about the bases, the, the bases result from like conditions of um, like engineered dependency, um, very often like extractive economic conditions. So those have to go. Like I, I think American empire will end one way or another because that's the way like history works. Um, but the way in which it ends matters in the way in which it's either, you know, cleaved from the economic conditions that created it or re- recapitulates those conditions in a kind of smaller way, um, or, you know, a more, a lighter footprint way in the way you described Daniel, um, matters a lot. I think you really do have to like actively get rid of these things. I- I've heard people object to this, um, by saying, like, well, we're not going to cede all of this territory um, to China. You know, our allies you know, want to make sure we're there as a, as a bulwark against, you know, the, the perfidies of the Chinese. And it's like, well, why is that? One of the reasons that it is that way is because the United States has taken very active roles um, in countries like South Korea, in, you know, in Japan. Um, amazingly, you know, historically speaking, now in Vietnam. Um, to, you know, set up those relationships um, that ensure that, like, local elites feel like they get and do get, materially speaking, good deals out of American empire. And then whatever happens to their people happens to their people, who increasingly are described in terms so abstract as to not be thought of as people in any rigorous way. So all of that has to change. I, I, you know, I I, I would, you know, nationalize, repurpose, and destroy the defense industry. You would, you would, you know, transform like the creation um, of like, you know, civilian airliners. Um, you know that have to be, you know, that are massive. You know, climate emergencies already. We should also remember that, you know, those bases in the U.S. military footprint. We don't often talk about it in these terms, but in terms of their carbon consumption you know, perhaps not as much as the actual hydrocarbon industry itself. But like, this is one of the things that's literally killing humanity, like not just in like direct observable conditions of violence, but in terms of structural violence. Kate Aronoff's book, Overheated, is incredibly um, lucid on these points. And unless we confront that, the I've You know, Derek mentioned up top that I don't like calling myself a national security journalist anymore. And if you go to my Forever Wars um, newsletter, you'll you'll see a, a piece about why that is, that I don't want to waste everyone's time recapitulating here. But the way in which we discuss national security is incredibly zero sum. It's incredibly solipsistic. And it deliberately neglects the ways in which the mechanisms of national security drive global insecurity, Global dependency and increasingly threaten the existence of humanity as 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 a you know as a species um so that's that i you know i daniel I don't want to front like I have like a programmatic answer um to that question i I really want to underscore like I see myself primarily as a reporter, so those aren't over, you know, obviously I have things I want to see in the world, but, you know, I don't really develop them as much as I take, like, the time I try and devote to developing my journalism for better or for worse. Uh,
1: well, I think um, that's an appropriate place to end on the uh, threatening the destruction of mankind. That's how we typically end <laughs> these interviews uh, anyway. Uh, so um, I, I did I had uh, many more questions and, and uh, I hope we can uh, do this again. Um, To some extent, I think we were uh, affected by current events today, but I I would definitely love to have you back on, Spencer, to uh, talk about some more of these things. Uh, But everybody should check out the book. Uh, Again, it is Reign of Terror, uh, you know, looking ahead to the video days. Uh, (laughs) And check out the the Substack, .substack foreverwars.substack.com. Spencer Ackerman, thanks so much again for coming on the program.
2: Hey, thanks so much, you guys, for inviting me. I had a great time. Thanks, Spencer.